you know, with, with the beginning of a new year, we also, uh, a lot of us make New Year's resolutions. And it's a common practice. And quite honestly, I think it's pretty, could be considered even a healthy practice because it is the setting of a goal. And who meets goals but those who set them, right? Um, it's interesting, however, that uh, in a study I recently read that it is about 46% of those who make uh, New Year's resolutions who actually keep those resolutions, who actually meet those goals. Uh, 46%. On some, on some level, you'd say, well, that's less than half, but it's 46%. It's almost half of us, right? The, the, it's curious that the same study revealed that uh, those who have goals in, for the coming year, but don't make resolutions about those goals. I, I'm curious, any idea on your part, how many of those people actually, what percentage of those people actually meet those goals? Zero. Not quite zero, not quite, 4%, 4%. So this idea of making a New Year's resolution actually is a, is a, perhaps perhaps a, a good practice because it sets our intention, it sets our pace, if you will, to, to actually meet a goal that we set. Now, but still, 46%, wow, I would have thought that they, or I would have hoped that the, uh, that the percentage would be greater for those that would actually meet their goals and their resolutions. It's clear to me that, that we need help we need something beyond our own particular personal resources to actually meet the goals that we set. And I would suggest that this morning, it's important that we include God in those goals. Um, it might go like this. Someone uh, I heard of who, who made a New Year's resolution and decided to say, God, I need your help with this resolution was uh, something like, Lord, um, it would be great in this coming year if, if you would grow my bank account to be much bigger and then be able to shrink my waistline as well. And don't get it mixed up like you did last year. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a way it works for a lot of us, right? Well, it's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul actually prays a prayer that I think is a fitting New Year's prayer, not just for himself, not just for the people that he was writing to, but for us today. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3? Ephesians chapter 3. And here we will find a prayer near the end of this chapter where the Apostle Paul prays that we would be strengthened, that we would be enheartened, enlightened, and filled. It's a profound prayer, and it speaks of um, not only the resources of God, but the grace that he gives in dispensing those resources. Read with me beginning in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to his, the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. <laughs> That's an incredible prayer. And the context of this prayer emanates from where Paul has been in the previous three chapters. He's been, he's been unfolding theology, 
speaking about who God is and what God does. And, and he is writing this, now we know, to the church at Ephesus, but it's interesting that many scholars believe that this letter actually was designed to be a, a letter to be circulated among the churches there in Asia Minor. And, and so Paul is, is praying this prayer, not just for this specific group of people, but for all of the people of faith there in Asia Minor. And dare I say, he is praying this prayer even for us. It applies to us and for us today. Um, Stuart Briscoe, uh, a, a, a pastor and scholar from, from, uh, England, who who immigrated here to the U.S. and 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 uh, helped in the revival of a church in the Upper Midwest, uh, says this. He I love this thought. He says that what's going on in this prayer is theology on its knees. It's not just the knowledge of God. It's not just the exposing of of his his wonders, both in his identity and in his deeds, but it is the bringing of that resource even into prayer. And it's, it's, we, I'd like for us to dig into this today. Verse 16, the apostle brings forward this one, this beginning petition. It is his first request. That you would that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Now, this inner man is an interesting phrase, isn't it? The inner man. It speaks of our conscience or of our our soul. And if there's an inner man, surely there there has to be an outer man as well. And the Apostle Paul is very real about that. He, he speaks of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He writes there, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. He speaks plainly of the fact that, yes, there is an outer man and there is an inner man. There is this conversation. Have you ever had this conversation? This conversation with yourself? Yeah, it's, it's a very real dynamic. The context of what Paul uh, writes there in, in 2 Corinthians chapter, or chapter 4 that we just read is this. Beginning in verse 7 of that same chapter, he says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. It's interesting to me that Paul, Paul juxtaposes this, this stuff that is going on on the outside with this inner attitude, this, this inner thought, this inner mindset that is completely opposite, if you will, of what's going on on the outside. Though the outer circumstances would seem to presume to, to create or to, to manifest an inner uh, attitude that would reflect that, Paul is saying, no, it's the, it's the complete opposite because we have a choice. We have a choice as to how we respond to these outward circumstances. Romans chapter 7, Paul, Paul goes further in, in uncovering this, this fact that there is a struggle going on in each of us. In fact, 
this struggle is, is one that will continue even through our lives because it is part of our humanity and part of our spirituality as well. Romans chapter 7, Paul writes, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the, the law of my mind and, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. There's two lives. There's an inner and there's an outer. And they're real and they're present with us. And Paul's prayer here in Ephesians is that we would be strengthened with power in the inner man. Now, this word strengthened in the Greek means to, it's not just, it's not just bulking up and being able to lift more. No, it's, it includes the idea of increasing vigor, increasing the, the capacity and even the desire to, to do more. And more than that, it, this word power is, is something different. It is, it is a miraculous power. It is, um, a power that, that, uh, well, it's, it's the word dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite. And it is, yes, it is explosive, but it's, it's so much more than what's packed into that little dynamite stick. It's that explosive power, and it's the power to actually accomplish something, the, to actually do something. The ability is what he's talking about. So he's praying that we would be strengthened in our inner being and be strengthened with the power to actually accomplish something. I, 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 I would paraphrase it this way. He is praying that our vigor would increase, enabling us with and, and the amazing and even miraculous power of the Holy Spirit in our inner being so that the Holy Spirit would give us the ability to respond more Hmm. more to our conscience, more to our spiritual integrity than our outward physical circumstances. That's where he begins this prayer. This is Paul's first request in this prayer. His second request follows in verse 17, the, the, the beginning of that verse. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts. He is speaking here of a, of, of, of a central tenet to his understanding of the Christian life. That a person may be in Christ. And thus live in the spirit and the power of the living Lord who dwells in us. Again, it's the, it's the centerpiece of Paul's theology. It's, it's, the, it's the core of what he understands the Christian life to be. That Christ is in us. And his life itself, his life itself along with all its power, is manifested in our life. And faith, faith is what enables or emboldens this reality within us. It is what enheartens us to actually live in the light of Christ's indwelling presence, to walk, to walk in the way that God has called us to walk. Look right down at the, at the beginning of chapter four, the verse, first verse of chapter four. He encourages us, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. This, 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 this indwelling presence of Christ is what 
Paul is saying can actually be present to work its way out in our lives. It will truly be manifest in us. Dr. James Stewart wrote a book called A Man in Christ. And he says that the person who is, quote unquote, in Christ is one who has a new orientation or a new direction. The person in Christ is looking to Jesus. Along the lines of, as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. This is this new orientation because we are laser fixed on Christ. And he says that this new orientation uh, manifests itself in three ways. First, he says, the person who is in Christ, the sinner is now looking not inward, but outward, trusting not in any merit in himself, but to something outside of himself altogether, the grace and love of an entirely trustworthy God. Secondly, he says that the person who is in Christ is looking not downward, but upward, not to sin's alluring shame, but up to the beauty and the purity of Christ. And number three, the person who is in Christ is looking not backward, but forward forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things that lie ahead. As Paul would write in Philippians chapter 3. Now, it's important to know that, that in this talking about the indwelling presence of Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory, um, Paul is... is uh, he also speaks of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And is that two different things? The, the indwelling of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? And I think it's important for us to understand that Paul is, he uses them interchangeably. In fact, if you, if you look, the first portion of, of uh, this, this prayer is, is indeed he speaks of the spirit in the inner man, the spirit of God in the inner man. And, and yet in the second petition, in the second request, he speaks of the indwelling Christ. He uses them interchangeably. And when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because we believe in the triune God. There is one God manifest in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God manifested in three personalities. Now, it's, can we understand that completely? No, I think that's part of the mystery of God. And yet here, it's important to understand that Paul uses these terms interchangeably. And both, both the, the power of the Spirit, the indwelling of Christ himself, they're put into action through faith. What matters most is that Christ will dwell in our hearts by faith. And that when he does, we get a new orientation for our life. We fix our eyes on Christ. Now, when we fix our eyes on Christ, not everything changes automatically, right? We're still, many of us, entangled with the sins that, that so easily ensnare us. And the road that, that we're walking on to be completely one with Christ may very well still be a long and difficult pathway. And the marks of, of sin that have kind of stubbornly been there, and dare I say, even the scars of sin, they're not going to be easily erased. And quite honestly, some of those will be with us until we die. You, you see, all of that is 
is just part of living. And yet being in Christ means that we set our eyes in a new direction and our, we fix our eyes on Christ. And we are enheartened to actually walk in a new way, to do things differently. And in all of that, the Lord is remaking us. He's remaking us in his own image. The third petition, verse 17, the second half of that. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Now, which surpasses knowledge. Paul isn't saying here that we, we can't know the love of Christ. No, he was quite honestly, he was contending against, uh, against the exaltation of knowledge in Greek culture. He's writing to a group of churches in Asia Minor who are, who are very influenced by the, the, the Greek culture of that day. And the exaltation of knowledge was very prevalent. He is saying, however, that the love of Christ is far beyond our rational limits. It's far beyond our intellectual capability, far beyond even our, our ability to theorize about it. So how do we get a hold of it? How do we begin to comprehend it? Well, it, it happens because this love is experiential. It's intuitive. It's practical. You see, the word comprehend, the Greek word means to possess, to, to apprehend it, to make it your own. Paul wants us, he wants us to get it, to really possess this knowing, make it our own. And that's why he starts with, and that you being rooted and grounded in love. It's part of your experience. It's more, it's more than head knowledge. And love, to us, to understand it, must be experienced. Knowledge is more than what goes on in your noggin. It what goes on in your heart. And he says, he writes then, that you may comprehend and know this love. This word know is gnosko. It is, it is a word that says to know, to know absolutely, to, to be aware of this, to, to feel it, to perceive it, to understand it. Again, it has to do with the experience of it. See, true knowledge of love is completely unattainable without the experience of love. Likewise, true knowledge of God is grounded in love. The Apostle John writes in his first epistle this, these, these iconic words, Chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, everyone who loves God is born of God and knows God. But he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. The knowing has to do with the experiencing. Paul um, saw the cross as the supreme revelation of God's love. It's interesting this morning that we, we sang a number of songs that deal with the cross. And indeed, Paul says the cross is, is the uncovering of what 
God's love is really all about. You see, he writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrated, that word demonstrate is really important. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In that, Paul is, Paul is saying this love that we're speaking about is married to sacrifice. Their love and sacrifice are two sides of the same coin. They go together and they cannot be separated. In, the, in this sacrifice of, of Jesus' life on the cross, we see, yes, sacrifice demonstrated as the deed of boundless, infinite love. This is the love he wants us to know. He wants us to get it, this boundless love, going even to the limits of crucifixion. And it's, it's a marvel. It is, it's overwhelming. At the cross we sang, at the cross, I surrender my life. I give all to you, or it, I'm in awe of you first, right? I'm in awe of you, God. Where your, where your love ran red and my sin washed white. What are the next words? I owe all to you. I owe all to you. It, you see, this, this understanding of the cross is, is both glorious, we are in awe of it, but it's also subduing. It, it forces us to our knees. It's not something that we can just look at. If we're going to get it, it forces us to absolute surrender. This is the love that Paul wants us to get, to comprehend, and to know personally, experientially. And he says that this love of Christ... <laughs> surpasses knowledge. It, it, he, it's like he just ran out of words. I don't know how else to describe it. It surpasses knowledge. Now, Paul is not, he, he is not dwelling on some incomprehensible metaphysical thing. And he is not exalting knowledge like, like the Gnostics of, of his day. But what he is saying is that to know love, this love is to know the very deepest nature and purpose of God himself. It, it, look at, at verse 18 again. You may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know this love. This little phrase with all the saints is honestly, it's one that we can run right past, but I think it's important that we take a look at it because it is of great importance that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints this love of Christ requires community. And community with all its challenges. I mean, let's be honest. There's a lot of folks in this room who are pretty quirky. <laughs> right? And, and some of you, some of you know that you're quirky and you love it. 
In fact, you flaunt it. What's not so um, apparent are those who are quirky and they don't know it. (laughs) But that's part of us. It's part of being together. And we, uh, we, we embrace one another as part of this community. This community includes a lot of likes and dislikes. Many of you like this, but others dislike that. And, and still another group may really appreciate that. And that group over there really does not like that. We've got that going on in our community. It it includes the reality that some of us are more dependent and perpetually needy. And others are quite honestly independent and self-sufficient. And are those polar opposites? Perhaps. Do we tolerate one another? Do we actually embrace one another? That's all part of our community. We can't get tired. How should I say this? I don't know that we should get tired of continually meeting need because neediness is part of it. By the same token, those of you who are so self-sufficient that we have no idea what's going on with you, that those things need to be molded together. They belong to one another. In this community of faith, there's no room, no room for cliques. There's no room for lone rangers. If we're going to be a part of this community, we all belong together. And there's no room for arrogance. There's no room for exclusivity. The value in the context that Paul was writing, the value of knowledge in that Greek culture, again, was was elevated. And some scholars suggest that in Paul's latter days, in, in the latter part of his ministry, there were small groups of intellectual converts who, who became exclusive preferring to worship by themselves. And Paul is standing in stiff opposition to that. We belong to one another. Knowledge that is of Christ, true knowledge, can never lead to a sense of superiority or exclusivity. In fact, any knowledge that leads to that sense of superiority or exclusivity is absolutely fatal to true knowledge. The more we are united in fellowship with other persons of common faith, the more we and they are united in fellowship with God. Love is known best not by isolating, isolated contemplation on some mountaintop somewhere, but by the experience of community. The boundless dimensions, the height and length and depth and breadth of the love of God require the combination of the entire community of faith. The the expression and experience of all Christians in order for us to be able to comprehend it, to get it, to really make it our own. The fourth petition that Paul gives here is verse 19, the second half. That you may be filled, filled up to all the fullness of God. What? Are you kidding me? 
that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Well, well, wait a second. The fullness of God is way more, way more than we can ever even hope to understand. How can we be filled up with all the fullness of God? Is Paul just stretching it here? Or is this a prayer that God would actually answer in the affirmative? Filled up to all the fullness of God? You see, Paul sees the love of Christ defined, the love of Christ is defined by the crucifixion. But life in Christ is defined by the resurrection. Chapter 1, verse 18, one of, the, 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 one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. You can turn to it. In fact, I would say turn to it and highlight it if it's not highlighted yet. Chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, Paul prays this prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Paul prays that we will be filled up with the fullness of God. You see, it has to do with the power of the resurrection. And what is that power? It's the power to make dead things come alive. It's the power to make old things brand new again. How many of us would like that? Yeah. Maybe you've lost hope. Maybe you've, you've been so beaten down and discouraged that you, you no longer have a sense of, of God's provision and faith is on its last legs. Guess what? The power of the resurrection is for that to make that which is dead or on death's doorstep come alive again. Maybe, maybe you've been thinking, man, if I only had what I had back in college or in high school, I was so on fire for the Lord and life was amazing if I could only tap into that. You know what? The power of the resurrection is for that, to make the old brand new again. This is, what, this is what Paul is praying for the church. And I have to say, it's my prayer too for all of us as individuals and as, as the gathering of saints that God would fill us up with the fullness of God. Now, how can that be? We can't contain God's fullness, right? There's no way. <laughs> but, but we can be filled to our capacity. And what is our capacity determined by? How do we figure out what our capacity is? Well, our capacity... Our capacity is the degree of our yieldness, yieldedness to God. A dear sister came to me after the, the service last night, and she said she had this, this image of, of uh, us being a vessel. And many of us have, have rocks that are in that vessel, um, rocks like, like bitterness and, and, and fear and hopelessness, rocks that are filling up, taking up space in our, in our, 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 our vessel. 
And when God pours in, he pours in and our capacity isn't what it once was. So what do we do with those rocks that are in there taking up space in our lives? How in the world do we we pull them out? How do we get rid of them? How do we increase our capacity? Well, I don't think it's so much related to the idea that we have to do the removal. The love of God is such that when it is poured in, it is capable of simply dissolving those things that take up space in our lives. And one day we will, we will discover, you know, I used to be so bitter about that loss. I used to be so angry at that person. But when we apprehend the love of God, that stuff disappears. And God is able to take that which is, that which is dead and make it alive again. He is able to take that which is rotten and putrid and purify it. That's part of being filled up with the fullness of God. How does that happen? It happens by our yieldedness to him. It's kind of like, it's kind of like uh, um, it's, In some properties around the valley, um, they have irrigation available to them. This little canal that runs past the front of their property. And and a lot of those people have have Bermuda lawns. Bermuda, is that right? Bermuda lawns. And they take flood irrigation. That's how they grow their lawn. What happens is they open up the gate. And when they open up the gate, what happens? the water rushes in and it fills every single nook and cranny in that yard. Every place it goes. And that's the way it is in our lives. When we yield ourselves to the Lord, the Holy Spirit rushes in and he fills every single nook and cranny and those places that have been dead, that look like they are, are hopelessly gone. Those places that are, are, are constrained by oh, those rocks of bitterness and, and, and hurt and hopelessness. The Holy Spirit rushes in and dissolves them. When we say, yes, God, yes, God. I'm completely yielded to you. This is what this this is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To be baptized in the Spirit. It's not the simply the placing of God's power packing it into your life. It is the unfolding of our yieldedness to him. And the Holy Spirit rushes in. This is Paul's prayer for us in the new year, in the right now. This isn't just Paul's prayer for for the people of Ephesus or those in that in that region, in that day. It is Paul's prayer for us right now. And let me say to you, it's my prayer for us right now. I know that the Lord is not only capable, but he is eager. Note as well that that what's happening here is that Paul is not Uh, praying that somehow this would well up inside of us and out of our own resources and capabilities and, and, and discipline, God is able to do his thing. No, take a look. Take a look at, at verse 16 again, that he would grant you 
according to the riches of his glory. This is a recurring theme throughout Ephesians. In chapter 1, verse 18, again, he, re, he writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, To me, the very least of the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. The word riches is wealth. Yes, it's wealth. It's abundance. But more than that, more than that, it is bestowment. It's the giving of that wealth. It's out of God's great riches that he gives and he gives abundantly. And this word glory, this word glory means honor and praise and worship. The dignity of God on great display that cannot be missed. Paul prays that God would give out of the abundance of his very, very apparent dignity, glory, and honor that he would give out of those resources to us inner strength and power through his spirit, regardless of our outward circumstances. He prays that God would give out of these great resources to us a heart that Christ lives in through faith. He prays that out of these great resources that God would give us the capacity to know and understand, to actually get it, to to apprehend this love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. And he prays that out of these great resources, that God would give us a fresh filling of all of these, to the fullness of God himself. What are we to do with that? I'd like for the lights to come down and for us to contemplate privately Is that a prayer? Is this a prayer that I would pray? Is this a prayer that I want to have prayed over me? Is this a prayer that I really want God to answer yes to? And I'm thinking of that as not just individual but for us as a community of faith. With our eyes closed and our hearts and minds focused on that question, if that's a prayer that you would desire to pray for yourself and for our community of faith. Would you stand with me? Lord, those of us who are standing, I know in very great measure may not even completely understand the full ramifications of this. But what we are saying is yes. Yes, God do in us, reveal in us this understanding that we know in the depths of who we are, that we actually get and understand this love that you have poured out upon us and that you desire to pour not only upon us, but through us. 
and that we together would experience the depth and breadth and height and length of that love. And Lord, that you would indeed fill us, fill us brim full to the full measure of our capacity with your spirit, with your power, with your grace. Lord, I pray that this morning, as we look into 2019, that this prayer, you would remind us often that this is a prayer that you delight to answer. And when we encounter those circumstances that would, would, would tempt us to look with doubt and fear, and despair, Lord, that even in those moments, you would remind us that the capacity that you give us is the measure of our yieldedness. And that even in those moments, we would say, God, I'm fully, completely yours. Do what you will in me and through me and among us. Lord, we, we lift this prayer to you in faith. And we know that, that, that the measure of your love is truly defined by this that we sing about, the wonder of your cross. And we are, we are not only in awe of that, but Lord, we are completely subdued by that. May it resonate within us.